An iron curtain has descended across the continent. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Welcome to the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training Cold War podcast series. I'm your host, Sumaya Ishrat. You can find the oral histories from today's podcast at ADST.org. Go online to learn more. We are grateful for the continuing member support that makes this podcast possible. Join us to work together preserving the experiences of America's diplomats. The Soviet Union was a communist empire with an area just short of the medieval Mongolians. Most importantly, communism at its core is an internationalist ideology with a natural tendency towards expansion. Stalin seized the opportunity to spread communist ideology by means of the Red Army, converting Eastern Europe's would-be liberators into its new occupiers. The United States and England perceived this new threat to democracy, and on March 5, 1946, Winston Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech. Soon after Churchill's speech, Greece collapsed into a civil war between monarchical and communist forces, foreshadowing instability in Turkey. Communism was on the march. Due to their geographic location between Asia and Europe, Greece and Turkey became the eastern barrier between the West and the communist bloc. They also acted as gatekeepers from warm water ports controlled by the USSR and the Black Sea. President Truman felt he had no choice but to ask Congress to provide $400 million to aid Greece and Turkey as a method of containing the advance of communism. His March 12, 1947 speech, The Eponymous Truman Doctrine, calling for the U.S. government to support nations dealing with external or internal threats of communism. This set the tone for U.S. policy for the rest of the Cold War, affecting American engagement with Germany, Greece, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and beyond. Here is Norbert L. Enschutz describing the logic behind aid to Greece and Turkey. Well, the, the American interests, of course, were to arrest the spread of Soviet influence. And the Soviets, of course, had moved into Bulgaria and had supported Tito in Yugoslavia, and as well as the, the communist elements in Albania. And the object of Soviet East Bloc policy was to overthrow the more or less conservative government, the royal, royalist government in Greece. While we were still in Greece, on March 7th, 1947, I remember, I think we, I particularly was in southern Albania someplace, and I had a daughter who, died, who was born on that day, but this was the day that the Truman Doctrine was announced. And the Truman Doctrine, which provided for the support of, of Greece and Turkey against Soviet pressure, had been influenced, I think it's fair to say, to a degree by the reporting of the Commission. I do not say it was crucial or critical, but the reporting from our embassies and from Mark Etheridge I think certainly tended to support the decision to declare the so-called Truman Doctrine. It was, as I say, this was a decision which was taken before 
the final discussion of the, uh, before the final writing of the report and before consideration of the report by the Security Council. But it was part of, of a general political reaction to Soviet pressure on Greece and Turkey. Notably, the aid granted military support to the anti-communist Greek government army. This precedent was followed for most American conflicts in the 20th century. Well, in the late 40s, yes, late 40s and maybe 1950, the first half of 51, we, the United States, under the Greek-Turkey program, was spending what was a very substantial amount of money at that time. And we had developed an, an aid mission, and we had developed a military mission, which was to uh, train and support the, the Greek armed forces. I'm trying to think the name of the man who was the head of the uh, economic mission. Oh, I think it was um, Porter. Because Hmm? All right, I'm sorry, I, 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 don't remember the, I don't remember the name. But in a sense, they, they, well, they worked well because the, the Greeks were so needy, they were highly cooperative, and with the American military supplies and some uh, American military counseling from the JUSMAG, as it was called, the Joint U.S. Military Advisory Group, the sort of shattered Greek military organization was gradually put into some sort of workable organization, and the the work of the guerrillas was somewhat circumscribed. I think it's also fair to say that as the American assistance increased, so did the assistance from Yugoslavia and, and the North increased, so that, that there were some rather significant military conflicts during that period. On the other side of the continent, Western Europe's post-war economy was in tatters. Poor economic conditions were fertile ground for an ideology championing those feeling the economic depression the most, the working class. Building on the Truman Doctrine, on June 5, 1947, Secretary of State George Marshall delivered a speech at Harvard University that would become a $12.4 billion, or $175 billion inflation-adjusted, aid program for Europe, the largest. Here is Jacob J. Kaplan on the Marshall Plan as read by an actor. People forget that we spent about $15 billion on foreign aid before the Marshall Plan. Various kinds, in various parts of the world. Most of it was for relief and rehabilitation. The European economy was nevertheless in pretty sad shape. By 1947, people in the State Department were concerned about what could be done to rebuild the European economy. Secretary Marshall came back from a very unhappy meeting with Stalin, where he became convinced that Stalin had absolutely no interest in helping restore economic health in Western Europe. He felt that we needed to do something. That led to Marshall's speech and to the European Recovery Program. We were, of course, pushing our views about economic policies. The ECA had missions in every one of the countries, headed by a political figure of a stature that made it possible to discuss policies with governments at the highest levels. However, we never threatened to cut off aid if they didn't do as we urged. There was a lack of arrogance, I believe, in our behavior. People talk about the American hegemony at that time. That is valid in the sense that we were the dominant economic power. 
But we didn't behave like the classic hegemon. We were interested in creating stable societies in Western Europe, not in selling an ideology. Though the aid helped lift tens of millions out of potential poverty, it was also a game of chicken. The Soviets denounced any American program in Europe by definition. So if the Americans were providing substantial aid to Europe and the Soviets blocked a popular program for the hungry people of Europe, the Soviets would look bad in European public opinion. Communism as a whole would seem an ineffectual system that could not compete with the productivity of American-style capitalism. But there was one Western-supported enclave the Soviets had behind the communist lines, West Berlin. Here is Thomas Dennigan on the Berlin blockade. The blockade started on the 24th of June, 1948, and lasted until 12th of May, 49. We maintained outwardly that Berlin was a four-power city and that we could, as a member of the occupying powers, could go anywhere we wanted within the city. We could not go outside the city. We were given five gallons, as I recall, of gasoline a month for our car which is not. So everybody was carpooling when they used a car in those days. I had a bicycle along with my car, and I used that a great deal in, in, during the blockade. It got to be a, um, a stick-it-out thing. Everybody said, by God, we're just not going to let them do this to us. And we did it. But with the introduction of the new currency reform uh, in West Berlin, prices meant something. Items began to have value again. West Germans had things that East Germans could only admire, you know. So gradually, gradually, there became a, a cleft between the two that grew wider over the years and ended, as we know now, with tearing the wall down. Berlin's importance to the Cold War became clear. If any single place was most likely to spark conflict between the superpowers, it was Berlin. Any Soviet military incursion on West Berlin would result in an immediate declaration of war by NATO. Post-war defense's weaknesses forced the West to cooperate in preventing the spread of communism in Europe and the surrounding geographic region. Countries like France and Germany, Greece and Turkey, who were still in conflict, were now forced together. Here is Theodore Atchley's story about the formation of NATO as read by an actor. On that New Year's Eve, I was sitting at my desk, slightly drowsy in the middle of the afternoon, when my immediate chief, Jack Hickerson, director of the Bureau of European Affairs, came into my office well mellowed by Fish House Punch and said, I don't care whether entangling alliances have been considered worse than original sin ever since George Washington's time. We've got to negotiate a military alliance with Western Europe in peacetime, and we've got to do it quickly. I said, fine, when do we start? He said, I've already started it. Now it's your baby. Get going. The night it broke up, the British Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, invited General Marshall to dinner alone in his apartment. That night after dinner, he made a statement to General Marshall, which was almost word for word the same one he made in the House of Commons two or three weeks later. He said, and I quote, There is no chance that the Soviet Union will deal with the West on any reasonable terms in the foreseeable future. The salvation of the West depends upon the formation of some form of union, formal or informal in character, in Western Europe, backed by the United States and the Dominions. Such a mobilization of moral and material force will inspire confidence and energy within and respect elsewhere. At that point, Western Europe was devastated, prostrate, and demoralized, and it badly needed confidence and energy within. 
with the Soviet armies halfway across Europe and still at their full wartime strength, and the Communist parties the largest single political elements in France and Italy, something to inspire Soviet respect was equally essential. Jack Hickerson was convinced that a European Union backed by U.S. material assistance would not be enough, that only a moral commitment by the United States to do whatever was necessary, including to fight if necessary, to restore and maintain a free and solvent Europe could create that confidence and energy within and respect elsewhere. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, was formed on April 4, 1949 in Washington, D.C. between the Western powers with the exclusion of West Germany until 1955. As the Cold War in Europe progressed into a long stalemate, an unexpected shock in the Far East could change the geopolitical environment. In 1949, Mao Zedong and the Communist People's Liberation Army succeeded in driving Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces to Taiwan. It was arguably the most significant American failure of containment. Who lost China syndrome infected many American minds and further feigned the flames of the growing Red Scare. Here is Ralph Klau with his take on China's communist turn. No one at that in 1945 or 46 would have predicted that by 1949 these huge nationalist armies with all their equipment and so on, so much superior in material terms to the, to the communists, would be reeling back in total defeat. What was the feeling there about the situation that you were getting? I mean, here were the people who were dealing with it. And well, you're beginning to get this who lost China syndrome by that time. The people in charge of Chinese affairs, Phil Sprouse, the director, and Tony Freeman, the deputy, were, were feeling it very, very strongly. Neither one, they, they did, I've forgotten just when they left those jobs, but after they did, they never again were given an assignment in China. <laughs> the most immediate question was whether the communists would, would stop at the border of Hong Kong. They took Guangzhou, I guess it was late 49, and uh, they were moving south in May 1950. They took Hainan Island, and they were at the border of Hong Kong, and nobody knew whether, the, whether or when they might cross the border because there was no way of defending Hong Kong militarily. The British couldn't defend it. So we, we had a, a rather tense period there in which uh, American dependents were advised to leave. The British did not advise their people to leave, but uh, the, the American Consul General Walter McConaughey made that decision. Then the, the next question, of course, was what would happen in Korea? The early years of the Cold War transformed the international community, the challenges of the post-war economic collapse in Europe, and the advance of the authoritarian communism required action. The creation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization between the United States and its European allies became the shield of protecting democracies around the spread of communism, while the Marshall Plan rebuilt the European economies. Despite America's early success containing the advance of communism, her fight to ensure self-determination would eventually extend beyond Europe and the immediate post-war period into regions unimagined. Thank you for listening. If you like this presentation and are curious to learn more about diplomats and diplomacy or listen to additional episodes in our Cold War history series, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The interviews used in this podcast are drawn from ADST's Foreign Affairs Oral History Collection. Our theme music is by Antonio Vivaldi. Our executive producer is James Fowler. 
This episode was researched and written by Gray Gardner and Derek Gutierrez. Derek Gutierrez and James Fowler provided our audio engineering and production. The actor's voice was recorded by Lyra Taropin. My name is Samaya Ishwat. Until next time.